Towards the beginning of Parshas Bahar, we learn about various halachos that govern the Torah's approach to real estate, to buying and selling land and property in the land of Israel. In Perak Chavhei, in Pesukim Chavgimel, Chavches, we learn about the halachos of a person who sells his ancestral uh, lands. That is to say, we know that the Jewish people, after they entered the land of Israel and conquered it from the inhabiting nations, through a goral, divinely inspired, each of the tribes, each of the Shvatim, were given their section of Eretz Yisrael, and each family within each shave, it was given their land. And over generations, from one generation to the next, land would be passed down from family member to family member, from generation to generation. And it's clear, as Rashi quotes here in these Pesukim, a person ideally very much should not be selling such ancestral uh, family uh, legacy lands. But nevertheless, if a person is really pressed for financial pressure and hardship, one could do so. And the Torah tells us here in these Pesukim two very important halachos regarding that. If you sell land, up to two years after the sale, the original owner or family members can redeem that land for a prorated uh, sale price based on that original price that had been agreed to, and buy back, redeem and buy back the land for the original family owner. And secondly, if you don't do it in those two years, then the new owner retains ownership, but not permanently. It's only until the Yovel year, the 50th year, the Jubilee year, at which point it automatically reverts to the original family. And the upshot of this is made clear by the Torah itself in Perak Chav Gimel, and that is, as the Torah itself writes, Land should never be sold in perpetuity. The principle that the Torah is delineating is that ultimately the true owner of all land is Hashem, and therefore no one else can truly buy or sell the land in perpetuity, because ultimately it's Hashem who is the only real and true owner. These halachos notwithstanding, fascinatingly, later, a few psukim later, the Torah seems to give an exception to the rule. In psukim chavtes tulamed, we are told that if a person sells a house that is in a walled city, not a field or a house that's in the field, but rather specifically a residential house in a walled city, a city that's been walled going back to the time of Yehoshua ben Nun, then there are slightly different halachos. Number one, the original owner or relatives have only one year, not two like we saw previously, but only one year to redeem the land. And secondly, if they don't redeem that land in the first year, then they have no chance whatsoever to redeem the land. And even after Yovel, even after the 50th Jubilee year, the house would remain with the purchaser. So the question is how to understand the basic halacha, and especially how to understand the discrepancy and the dis- distinguishing factor between these two cases. Say for Achinuch and Mitzvah Shin Lamed, enunciates in a very beautiful way the basic idea which we've already seen, that the hashkafa of all these mitzvos is to reinforce the notion that we should internalize that land is really never sold or bought in halacha, but rather ultimately really leased. Because the idea is that no one really owns anything because the land owns, is owned by Hashem. But that doesn't itself help understand this discrepancy. Why is there a difference between selling fields or houses that are in the field versus selling residential homes that are exclusively in walled cities. So I want to share two ideas from the Rishonim, uh, which actually take opposite uh, perspectives to this question. The first is the Ramban, here in Pasach Chavtes, who suggests that these halachos reflect the needs and mindset of the seller. That is to say, to sell a personal home, a residential home in a walled city, from such an ancient city is frankly embarrassing, uh, humiliating, and shows certain financial 
desperation. There's no other word for it. But because the person must be so embarrassed by it, the Torah allows for redemption for the first year. However, if after that, a person still has not redeemed the land, says the Ramban, we can assume that that person has found a new house. Perhaps for some short time after selling your original house, you can kind of be bunking at a friend, a neighbor, a relative. But at some point, you're going to need to find a new home or hopefully get the funds to buy back your original home. The Torah assumes that within a year, either a person will have been so desperate that they were able to figure out a way to get the funds to buy back the original house. And if they still haven't done that after a year, we can assume that the person has found a new house to live in and has moved on literally and figuratively. Now, there is no more busha, and therefore it can remain with the buyer. On the other hand, when it comes to the fields used for farming or homes that are near and attached to those fields, the main focus is parnasa and earning a, a livelihood. And the damage of a person having to give up the source of their livelihood, have to sell off, so to speak, the family farm, and have no other consistent basis of uh, earning a parnasa, but having been so desperate for the cash from the initial sale, that is so terrible, so tragic, such so a crisis, that we don't just give the person a year to try to buy it back and restart his parnasa, but we give him two years, and even if he can't do it in the two years, it's still not permanent, and after Yovel, the land goes back. So that's based on a sensitivity to the difference between the needs of a residential home versus the needs for having a property that is really the source of parnasa. And all of this is based on, as we said, the mindset of the seller. The Chizkuni, however, gives a second answer, which is the opposite in a sense. And that is that the focus is on the mindset of the purchaser. If you purchase a home inside a city, your intention is permanent. In other words, if you buy a residential home, you want to really own that. You don't want to be renting it or leasing it. People don't really appreciate living in someone else's home. So if you buy something, you really want it. So the Torah gives the original owner a year but after a year, we say it's not fair to the new purchaser, and after a year, it fully becomes yours, and that's that. On the other hand, when it comes to the fields, in the case of agriculture, so there, a person's relationship to the property is more transient and more transactional. As we know, says the Chizkuni, sharecroppers would live on a certain property in those homes while working on the land, but then the job would end, the season would end, and they move on to another property and move into another home. And that's just an example of illustrating the point, says the Chizkuni, that people's relationship with those type of fields, because they are primarily focused on Parnassah, so there isn't that emotional attachment, it's more of a transactional uh, relationship. And therefore, such an owner does not really have a personal connection to the land, and therefore it can be redeemed for up to two years, and even after that, really just a lease for 50, because that new owner doesn't really uh, invest himself or really care so much about it as long as he makes his money back, as opposed to if he buys a residential house in the walled city where he really personally identifies with that new home. At the end of the Tochacha, the Torah's incredibly detailed and scary description of all of the punishments that we will incur if we abandon the ways of the Torah, we end on a positive and uplifting note. As the Torah tells us in Perachavav, Pasuk Memdalet, Va'af Gamzos, and despite all this, Biyosem Be'eret Oivehem, the Jewish people are in the land of their enemies, they have been exiled, they are in Golos, Loma Astim, Hashem says, I will not despise them, Loga Altim, and I will not reject them, Lachalosam, to totally destroy them, that will not happen, which otherwise would be Lahafer Brisi Itam, because that would, unfortunately, irrevocably, break my covenant with them. Rather, Hashem says, I will, in essence, maintain them, despite the fact that they've been punished, despite the fact that they've been bad, I will keep them alive throughout the Golos. 
Ki ani Hashem Elohim, because I am the Lord their God. Commenting on this pasuk or using this pasuk as a springboard, Rabbi Simcha of Dvinsk and his Sefer Meshachachma has an incredibly long and powerful and very famous piece in which he uses this as an opportunity to meditate on the Jewish experience of exile, of Golos, beginning all the way with our first Golos, when the Jewish people went down to Egypt, and all the way into his very day, taking it almost until our time. The Shachachma begins this incredible piece by noting that once it was determined, Bahashkacha Pratis, the Jewish people, that the Bnei Yaakov would go down to Egypt, already from the outset, Chashva Ofanim V'tachpulos, Asher Yisrael Yitzchayimu L'goy, V'lo Yisbalalu Ba'amim. Already our leaders were thinking and devising strategies so the Jewish people should be able to maintain their identity, maintain their independent existence, and not chas v'shalom, become assimilated. The Meshachachma continues by telling us that the first to do this was none other than Yaakov himself, who was very acutely aware of the dangers that were presented to his small family, just 70 people, being absorbed into the great empire of Mitzrayim. And as a result, Choshav Tachbul of Eitzah, Yaakov himself devised strategies for the family as they went down into Egypt. Shabanav Yehub and Mitzrayim, Mitzuyanim, excuse me, Sham, the Jewish people, that his family would be distinguished, they would be distinguishable when they were in Egypt with the following, they would keep unique and distinct Jewish clothing and dress, and they would continue, keep their unique and distinct Jewish names. By doing so, Yaakov was successful and able. This, of course, is Rameir Simcha basing himself off of some well-known midrashim. And this was the first strategy which the Jewish people were able to employ the children of Yaakov in order to maintain their identity and their existence as an independent family dedicated to Hashem, despite being completely surrounded by millions and millions of Egyptians. As the Gullus grew longer, Rameir Simcha continues, Yaakov understood that it would outlast his lifetime, and therefore he asked and commanded Yosef and the rest of his children to bury him in the land of Eretz Yisrael, not to bury him in the land of Egypt. And Rav Meir Simcha amazingly, powerfully says the reason that he did that is because he understood, Yaakov did, that if he would be buried in Egypt, his children would forever forget about Eretz Yisrael, and by him being buried and making his permanent, everlasting home as a grave, in Egypt, that would cement the Jewish people, his family's connection to Egypt, and would sever their connection, Rahman al-Tzlan, to the land of Israel. Says Rabbi Simcha, Yaakov realized if he was buried in Egypt, they would completely forget and abandon their connection to the land of Israel. They'd be totally absorbed and connected and anchored in Mitzrayim. But on the contrary, by having his family bury him in the land of Israel, says Rav Mayor Simcha, not only did he help that generation realize that Egypt wasn't their home, but moreover he implanted that into the DNA of all future generations of Jewish people. That one act served as such a powerful reminder and instilled such a powerful principle and connection the Jewish people had, that his family had, that wherever they are, they're merely guests, they're merely strangers in Gerim, but their ultimate and only one home is the land of Israel. He continues by quoting a sifrei in Devarim that Yaakov taught all generations that wherever we are, wherever we live, we cannot be absorbed where we are, 
but rather Malamad Ladoros Bachol Golos Vagolos Hanaga Shiedu Shalo Yardul Hishtakea. We're not going there to settle permanently, but only Lagor Ad Bokates Hayamim. It's only a temporary thing until Mirza Hashem speedily in our days we have the ultimate Geula. But the most important thing is he, Yaakov taught his children, you machshavim be'inei atzmam, lo ke'ezrachim. They should realize themselves, their own self-perception is so crucial that they are not permanent citizens of any other nation, merely residents and guests, but never citizens. Mayor Simcha goes on in this lengthy piece to trace through the generations Yosef, leadership, eventually to Ezra, and all the different generations when they made these various xeros or various halachos as a way of differentiating them, just like Yaakov had done originally. Ezra Meir Simcha brings this into his own generation, not that long before, unfortunately, the tragic events of World War II and the Holocaust. He, in essence, predicts this as he sees the Jewish people growing more and more comfortable in Germany, and he says, history is repeating itself. Throughout our history, we move to one land, we become new uh, residents of a new country, we begin not knowing the language, being poor, but eventually we build ourselves up, and then unfortunately there's always some percentage of our population that forgets and thinks that that's our new home, and therefore Hashem has to bring the winds of change and blow us to some other nation where we have to begin again. And says Rav Meir Simcha with scary, uh, almost almost a prophecy, with scary uh, prediction and confidence, he's worried as he sees the growing assimilation in Germany, the Yachshav ki Berlin hi Yerushalayim, the people think that Berlin is their new Jerusalem. And he unfortunately his senses the cycle of Jewish history continuing. Rather, he says, we have to realize throughout our Jewish history, throughout, that the only way we can continue this miraculous march of Jewish history, which, as he says, is one of the greatest miracles of all, is that we have to remember, in fact, our uniqueness, to keep our loyalty to Hashem, to the Torah, maintain our distinctive identity, and Yimur Hashem ultimately will have the permanent Geula, the Meher of Yameinu. Im our Parsha opens up, very famously introducing the Tochacha, with the positive and more optimistic side of the equation. If we keep the mitzvos, the Torah goes on to list quite a few rewards, and only later does the Torah then go to the opposite side of the spectrum. What if we don't keep the mitzvos? And of course, in that case, the Torah has some very detailed and scary punishments that it lists for us. Chazal, in the Medrash, in Vayukha Rabbah, in the opening section on our Parsha, Parsha Chaf, to me, Lamed Hay, have a very subtle and careful reading of that Pasuk that we began with, the opening of our Parsha. And the Medrash notes that in our Pasuk, the Torah seems to be going out of its way specifically to use the verb of Telchu, or Lashon of Halicha, of walking, to describe keeping the Chukim. And instead, and the Pasuk continues when it talks about mitzvos, uses two other verbs, Tishmaru, a lashon of Shmira, of keeping, of watching, and Vasisem, of doing, of performing, a lashon of Asiya. Farshi HaMedrash note that this careful reading of the Pasuk, and the assumption that there seems to, be, seems to be a deliberate word choice, is crystallized and sharpened, we consider that there are other places in Tanakh in which, with the word Chukim, we actually do have, in other contexts, words of Shmira, or Asiya. So, for example, in Perak Yudchas of Vayikra, we read, Es Mishpatai Ta'asu, Es Chukosai Tishmeru, Shmartem Es Chukosai. So we see twice a lashon of Shmira being used for Chukim. 
in Yechezkel, Perachavei, Vasitem es Chukosai. So there we see in both of these situations and others that the word Chok can be coupled with a word choice of Shmira or Asiya. If that's the case in other Psukim, that just brings back our focus and contrast and it crystallizes the fact that it seems that in our Pasuk and in our Parsha, the Torah deliberately goes out of the way not to do that. It specifically chooses the verb telchu, or lashon of walking, of halicha, to describe the chukim. The question, of course, is why this is so. Is there perhaps some deeper, subtle message for us to gain from that? So the Medrash gives the following very beautiful answer. It connects this to the life choices and the behavior of none other than David HaMelech. As David himself writes in Tehillim, Perak Kuf Chishavti derachai, vashiva ragalai el edosecha. Each and every morning, chishavti derachai, I considered my ways, I had something I had to do, an errand, some place I wanted to go for me, derachai, for me. And yet, nevertheless, each time, ashiva raglai, my legs, so to speak, take me, my feet take me, el edosecha, to things that are more spiritually focused, things that are Hashem's. I started off my day thinking I'd do something for myself. In the end, my legs take me to things for Hashem. In other words, David is saying, that each day I plan on doing something for myself and my feet just take me to the shul or to the base medrash. Whether it's purely from habit of all the times David had done it and or because of David's love of Torah and mitzvot and davening, like Gemara Sukkah tells us, wherever I love, my legs take me. And clearly the image and powerful uh, lesson that the Medrash is drawing from this Pasuk is the fact that it happens so automatically to David, it's as if the legs are working autonomously. In the Lashon of the Medrash, David says to Hashem, I'm going to go to see this person or that place, and nevertheless, My legs are taking me. In other words, it's as if it's happening automatically, without any deliberate forethought on David's part. His legs are just taking him. That's how automatic, that's how instinctive it is for him to go to the shul or to the base medrash. And then the medrash asks, and it's not a rhetorical question, it's a serious one where we need to know the answer to this. Says the medrash, how did David develop such a habit, such a love of the base medrash or the base Knesses, that somehow his GPS, his internal compass, was always taking him back, back and again and back and again to the shul and the base medrash? The Medrash answers that David himself, again using that term that we saw in the previous Pasuk, Chishavti, he says, I did a Chishuv, I thought about it. I thought about the great reward for mitzvos and the great terrible punishment for Averos. So then asks the Medrash, continuing to probe, how did David know that there was so much reward for punishments? Excuse me, reward for mitzvos. How did he know there was so much punishment for Averos? So says the Medrash, based on the Tochacha, because after all it says, for the reward of mitzvos, you will even be Shalom Baritz. And what could be greater than a reward of peace? Amazing. On the other hand, it says, for the Averos, the Asafti, the Asra Eschem, Hashem says, I will add and increase your suffering. Increased suffering compared to Shalom, clearly there's big stakes in both directions. David Amalek said, okay, I guess I need to focus on the mitzvos. And then the Medrash adds one final thing, which is really incredible. Says the Medrash, David looked carefully, and he noticed that when it came to the brachos in our parsha, me'alef v'ad taf, that in fact, the opening words of the Brachos begin with the letter Aleph, Im Chukosai Telechu, as we saw, and the end of the Brachos end with the letter Taf, V'olich Eschem Kamemius, I will bring you with great pride and standing upward and proud to the land of Israel. 
So the brachos are comprehensive from Aleph Atav. However, the klolos, the curses, begin with a vav, v'im lo tishmuli, and they end with a hey, biad Moshe. Not only is there a quantitative discrepancy, all the letters of the alphabet versus just two, vav and hey, but it says the medrash lo od el shein hafuchos. It's going in the opposite direction. It starts with vav and then it goes backwards to hey, which taught, teaches us and taught David, Amar Rabbi Avin, im zachisen harin yehofech lechem, klolos lebrachos. That is to say, it's not just that there's more power in the brachos than there are in the klolos, but in fact, there's a hidden power, which is that if we're zochah, if we truly do the mitzvos, then even the klolos can, so to speak, go backwards. They can go from vav to hey, they can be transformed, they can be completely reimagined so that, in fact, the klolos themselves go in the opposite direction, opposite of the way they were intended. They themselves become brachos. And this, in conclusion, says the Medrash, is why our Parsha is using specifically the Lashon of Halicha, if you go, if you consider this like a journey with two paths, and you take the correct path, then you are going to have this incredible bracha. On the other hand, if you give up, or even just simply allow life to take you wherever it goes, then you'll never develop the love and the habits to go in the right direction. If you make those choices, then you will. The end of the Torah's section describing the Jewish slave, the Eved Ivri, in the discussions of when he can go free, either after a shorter period of time or eventually, if not sooner than during the Yovel year, during the Jubilee year, the Torah concludes that section at the end of Per Kafhei by telling us, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim, that the Jewish people are my servants, they're my slaves. They are my servants, they are my slaves, I took them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And fascinatingly, despite this focus about freedom and the preference for freedom and not being a slave, the Torah ends this section with a profound declaration that in fact we are truly and ultimately always slaves to Hashem. And this raises the question, one that the Sfasemes gives great and considered thought to, what does it mean to be an Evet Hashem, to be God's servant or God's slave? What exactly does that mean? How does that look like? What form does it take? Says the Sfasemes, simply, Kabbalos ol machos shamayim, Kabbalos ol machos, ol mitzvos. An unwavering commitment to observe mitzvos based on an absolute acceptance of Hashem's authority over us. Simple to say, obviously not always simple to feel or to do. But this is such an important principle, says the Sfasemes, that the Navi Yeshayahu in Perak Memtes says, V'yomer li avdi ata. Hashem says, you are my slaves. Similar theme, return to this theme. Yisrael asher b'cha espa'ar. And I take great pride in you, Jewish people, that you are my avadim. In other words, says the Svasemes, we see from this, that if we reach this level of being a true Eved Hashem, it's not just a shevach, a praise to the Jewish people, but in fact, it's something that Hashem himself takes great pride in. The question is why? What is the deeper message here? How can we understand why this is necessary why this is important for us, and why Hashem would take such great pride in us when we achieve this exalted level. So the Sasemis continues and explains that the nature of our commitment to Hashem is that the more we understand, then the deeper our commitment and the higher we go. And even though usually we think of knowledge, so to speak, uh, giving people a certain level of freedom, but in fact, says the Sasemis, the more knowledge we have of Hashem, the greater our Kabbalahs, Ol Mitzvos, or Ol Machos is, then, in a somewhat paradoxical way, 
the more we feel bound. And that elevates us even more, and which in turn makes us even feel more enslaved, or more committed, or more bound, which creates and elevates us even more, which in turn gives us more a sense of abdus. In other words, just like when it comes to the realm of knowledge, Torah or Lahavdla, anything else, the more we learn, the more we know, only then is the more we realize how little we know. Says the Svasemes, it's the same thing when it comes to our knowledge of Hashem. The higher levels of commitment that we can make, das, says the Svasemes. This doesn't come from a lack of knowledge, but on the contrary, it's Davka, the more we know, the more we learn, the more we understand, the more we realize just in fact how indebted we are, how enslaved and committed we ought to be to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Sasemis explains that even though the Torah here and in other places is using the term Eved, but when we are an Eved to Hashem on this higher level, he refers to that as achieving what we might call, or he calls, I should say, the level of being a ben. What's the difference between the ben, the son, or the prince of the king, and all the other subjects? After all, in the end, the king is the king over everyone, including his own children. So Sfasemes, but the, the ben knows, the ben is committed, not just out of fear, but because rather he knows that his father loves him, and he's committed to the truth of the father's kingship, because he truly, in, absolutely, in his heart of hearts, believes that it's the right thing, that it's the truth. You know, we're familiar with the expression, the truth will set you free. From the Torah perspective, that's at best incomplete. The truth will set you free from servitude to man, or to our more base desires. But the understanding of the truth of the universe, of Hashem, will actually make you even more committed, and more of an evid to Hashem. I think it's worth spending a few moments just to point out that kind of, standing or lurking behind this beautiful presentation of the Sfas Emes and his understanding of why it's important for us and why Hashem takes so much pride in us achieving this is an assumption that is worth exploring and elaborating on for a moment, and that is that there is no such thing as absolute freedom. That's illusory and a fantasy. We're always enslaved. We're always dependent on or acted upon by something. The only question is what? It starts with things as basic as the laws of nature, for example, gravity. We're not, there's no way to get free of that. We're beholden to it, no matter what. And even slightly more subtly, but just as basic, our needs for food, our need for sleep. A person might genuinely want to be freed from the need to eat, freed from the need to sleep. Well, guess what? There's nothing you can do about that. We are enslaved, in a sense, to that need. So the real question is, as we move up the ladder to things which, in fact, are less absolutely necessary, so we actually do have some element of choice, what will we choose to be enslaved to? To our more base and animalistic desires for power, for honor, for physical pleasure? Or we could be enslaved to mitzvos, the values of the Torah, and other more elevated ideals. It is built into the hardwiring of the human condition that the more we commit to those spiritual and elevated values, the less we become beholden to the more physical ones. The idea of obligation, of mechuyavut, is critical. Because without that, we don't have a sense of that. We quickly devolve into slaves of our own passions. There is no absolute freedom. We can't say, I want to be free from the obligations of the Torah and free from everything else. I want to be totally free. It simply doesn't work. If we don't have the commitments to the Torah, ultimately something else will enslave us. The more we commit, and especially when we do so, because we know it's true, 
not just out of obligation, but out of commitment to the values and the virtues and the truth of the Torah and the goodness of the Torah, then the more impact it has and the more powerful that impact is on us. As Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi so beautifully says, If you're slave to something that's temporal, something that's limited in time, you're just a slave to another slave. However, if you're Evet Hashem, only the Evet Hashem is truly free. The Ramban, in the context of his commentary to this week's Parsha and the Tochacha, where the Jewish people are criticized and punished because of basically forgetting Hashem. So in that context, the Ramban goes on a very fascinating digression. He discusses what should be the proper attitude of the Jew when it comes to medicine and doctors. And the Ramban, somewhat shockingly to the modern ear, says that in fact, ideally, one should never need or ever go to a doctor. Not that no one would ever get sick or injured. Unfortunately, that is reality. But says Ramban, we should really realize that ultimately the world is governed by spiritual cause and effect. And we should be living on that higher spiritual plane. And therefore, if unfortunately a person was sick or injured, then you should realize that there's a spiritual cause to that. And as a result, either on your own or with the help of the Kohen or the Navi, figure out what is the spiritual cause, what sin did you do, what transgression, what weakness uh, have you violated, where, where the problem is, and then hopefully do tshuva, and through davening and tefillah and tshuva, rehabilitate, rehabilitate yourself spiritually, and then physically you will be healed. But you should totally view it as a spiritual phenomenon with spiritual cause and effect, and therefore the solution should be spiritual and religious as well. Nevertheless, says Ramban, let's say a person is not on the level, and Nebuch, in his view, can't live a purely spiritual life, and you want to rely on the natural cause and effect, and science, if you will, natural order. So says Ramban, the Torah does allow it, but it's really very much frowned upon far, far from ideal. This incredible and somewhat shocking chiddush of the Ramban, not surprisingly, is discussed and debated by other Rishonim. Some argue with him in a more compromised, moderate way, and others argue with him in a more wholesale, uh, fundamental way. So the compromised position is suggested by the Ibn Ezra, who says it really depends on what the injury or what the sickness is. If it's something that's more external, uh, a broken bone or something like that, and if it's something similarly that was caused by the actions of some other person, negligence or malice of another person, says Ibn Ezra, then that might not have been necessarily God's original plan, and it doesn't contradict God's plan to go to the doctor, for sure go to the doctor, do what they say. However, says Ibn Ezra, let's say it's machalot primyot, it's some internal, natural, purely quote-unquote God-caused malady. You have a heart condition, you have a blood disorder, you have a stomach problem. So there, that's purely from Hashem, and therefore says Ibn Ezra, he goes as far or even farther than Ramban, no medicine, no science, no doctors, that's purely something that between you and Hashem, and therefore that needs a spiritual uh, rehabilitation. The final view in Rishonim rejects pretty much everything we've said until now wholesale, and that is a tshuva of the Rajba, a very, very important tshuva. But it's important to understand exactly what he means. First of all, he says, yes, of course, 100% go to the doctors. doesn't matter if it's internal, external, natural, whatever. It doesn't matter what the malady is, what the illness is, what the disease is, what the injury is. Go to the doctors, listen to what they say. On the other hand, even the Rashba, of course, admits, and he's very clear about this, it's only legitimate and permissible to go to the doctor if libo l'shemayim, that is to say, you have to realize, and even the Rashba acknowledges, the ultimate doctor is the great doctor in the sky. Of course, it all comes from Hashem. Whether the doctor or whether the medicine will be successful, 
all depends ultimately on Hashem. If Hashem blesses the doctor, if Hashem blesses the medicine, so to speak, for it to be successful, then it will. So when one goes to the doctor, when one takes medicine, it should be from the perspective of, yes, this is what Hashem wants. Hashem wants me to take natural hishtadlus uh, in order to cure or fix the problem. But I understand that ultimately my source of healing has to come from Hashem. And therefore, if you will, if I could paraphrase, yes, you go to the doctor, but you bring your tehillim with you. That is the approach of the Rashabah. Interestingly, uh, these Rishonim also debate when the Gemara tells us in Babakama, uh, based on the Pasuk in Parshas Mishpatim, Rapo Yirape, and the Gemara says, Mikan Nitin the doctor was given permission to heal. So, how do we understand that? So, it says Ramban, yes, the doctor was given permission if you, the patient, show up, but there's no license ideally for the patient to go at all. That's a nebuch, that's a bidyevid. The patient should be going to the Kohen. The patient should be davening, should be doing tshuva. But if a per- person says, you know what, I can't live on that spiritual level, I want to go to the doctor, then the Gemara says, okay, fine, uh, you can go to, the doctor can heal you. But not that ideally you should go to the doctor. Ibn Ezra says, no, I learned this Pasuk and that Gemara differently. Ibn Ezra says, this is perfectly a proof for me, because the context of that Pasuk in Parshas Mishpatim is if two people fight and one injures the other. So it says that Ibn Ezra, oh, you see from here, if it's an injury that's external, caused by the behavior of another human being, you see from this, as I said, you are allowed to go to the doctor. But if it would be something completely different, a disease or some kind of malady that's internal and just came upon you naturally, then there's no permission to go to the doctor. The Gemara was never talking about that, and therefore you shouldn't go to the doctor in those kind of cases. And the third approach, Rashi, Tosos, the Rashba, Babakama, they all say that this Gemara and this Pasuk comes to totally reject these previous two approaches. Yes, you might have thought from a religious worldview that if a person is injured or a person gets sick, unfortunately, that that's God's will and who am I to interfere? Kamash Malan comes along the Pasuk, Rapo Yirape, comes along the Gemara, Mikan Nitan, Rishos, Lerofe, Lerapos. In the Rashba and Rashi and Tosos' view, the Gemara is in a wholesale way rejecting the approaches that we saw from the other opinions, and they are saying, yes, the Gemara is telling you, yes, natural hishtadlis, going to doctors, listening to doctors, is absolutely legitimate and appropriate. Again, with the proviso, with the caveat that you realize that ultimately even the doctors and even the medicine will only be successful if God wants it to happen. But nevertheless, how we should go about living our life, yes, go to doctors, yes, take the medicine, yes, listen to them, as the Gemara endorses. So whichever the three approaches we started with, each one of them finds support from this fascinating pasuk, and Gemara. In terms of the bottom line, Psak, as we're all familiar with uh, common practice, for many, many centuries, the Minog is to, been, to accept the position of the Ibn Ezra, and post-game after post-game, generation after generation, have encouraged us to go to doctors, to take medicine, and to listen uh, to the doctors. The Shulchan Aruch says not only is it a mitzvah, excuse me, not only is it permissible, says the Shulchan Aruch, but it is even a mitzvah. And many other achronim say even the Ramban nowadays uh, would agree that maybe he was talking about a different generation on a higher spiritual level, but nowadays we listen to doctors, we sometimes even will violate halacha if the doctor tells us, we certainly, in a normal situation, listen to doctors and don't violate what they say. It's a mitzvah to do so. There was one minority view, the Avni Nezer, who said a person, if they want, doesn't have to listen to the doctors. They can just put their trust in Hashem. But that has always been a minority view. And even within his own family, that view was rejected. And certainly in general, our menogiz, as we said, to follow the practice and the guidance of doctors. Rashi's comments at the opening of Parshas Bahar are among the most famous rabbinic statements of all time. The Torah tells us, Ve'edaber Hashem al-Moshe b'har Sinai le'mor. Hashem instructed Moshe at Har Sinai with the following. Command the Jewish people about the concept of Shemitah. It is a sabbatical year. You have to let the land lie fallow, etc., etc. And that is the continuation of the Psukim 
delineating the details of the mitzvah of Shemitah. And Rashi, here commenting based on Chazal, wonders in his famous formulation, Ma inyan Shemitah etzel har Sinai? Or as what we might be familiar with in uh, English, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Or some other similar cliche or idiom. That is to say, why does the Torah introduce this very specific section dealing with a particular mitzvah of Shemitah with the words, Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai? That sounds like something very, very general or something kind of a meta idea. And then we specifically go into uh, the mitzvah of Shemitah. What is the connection? You, You could have just started off with the mitzvah of Shemitah. So Rashi responds with the famous teaching that this is coming to teach us the following. Ma Shemitah ne'amru b'kloloseha. Just like Shemitah and all of its details and intricacies and finer points were commanded at Sinai. So to all other halachos were also specifically uh, given at Sinai. None of them are given after, before, but specifically all of the Torah, all of the mitzvot derive their authority from Sinai. This is the very famous teaching of Chazal here and made famous, popularized by Rashi, with the well-known phrase and idiom, What does one have to do with the other? Why specifically mention Sinai? Ramosha Feinstein has a beautiful short piece in his Sefer, Darash Moshe, and he suggests that the real um, upshot, if you will, of this teaching of Rashi and Chazal, the real point that we should take from this, focuses on uh, mitzvot that were given before Matan Torah. In other words, he understands that what Chazal and Rashi are pushing is the notion that even those mitzvot, which the Jewish people had already been commanded, that humanity at, at, at large, already from the time of Adam and Noah, humanity at large had already been commanded from before Matan Torah. Nevertheless, going forward, the obligation for all mitzvot, including those mitzvot which had been previously commanded, but now, going forward, all mitzvot derived their authority from the fact that they were given to the Jewish people through Moshe on Hart Sinai. In order to highlight and emphasize and underscore this point, Rav Moshe quotes from the Rambam in Hilchos Malachim, in which the Rambam in Perches Halachir Aleph describes a non-Jew who is not obligated to keep all 613 mitzvot like the Jewish people are, but is commanded in and is rewarded if he follows what's known as the seven Noachide laws, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nei Noach. And specifically, the Rambam underscores that it's not enough to simply follow these mitzvot, but rather, if a person wants to do them and achieve the title of Mechaside Umos Olam, to be known among the righteous of the Gentiles, and yet have a chilek and olam haba. We know that as a Jewish belief that you do not have to be Jewish in order to merit olam haba. Non-Jews as well can merit olam haba if they live the moral life as defined as living based on a belief in monotheism and following these seven mitzvahs. However, here the Rambam specifically says it's not enough to simply follow those mitzvahs, but rather you have to do so, do so based on the fact that you believe that God gave them in the Torah and commanded you as a non-Jew, as a Gentile, to follow them. However, says the Rambam, im asan hadas, but if a person just does them because on his own he figures, these are logical, these are intuitive, these are moral, these are ethical, that is not considered being among one of the righteous of the Gentiles. It loses its moral and religious weight and significance if a person does it on their own. Rather, it must be done because it is a mitzvah, uh, not for any other reason. So this is an example, says Ramosha, of the larger point that he sees being made by Rashi and our Parsha, that the ultimate authority for all mitzvahs comes from the fact that they were given at Sinai. It can't be because you just thought of it on your own. And Ramosha continues to say that the basic difference is exactly that that when it comes to the mitzvot that were given to the Jewish people, or for that matter, to humanity on a whole, before Sinai, those were based on logic. But logic, says Ramosha, is not going to be binding forever. 
After all, says Rav Moshe, we know that there was the famous yeshivas Shem Ve'ever. People from all over the world would come and learn the basic tenets of Judaism, of, of monotheistic faith, for Shem Ve'ever. Or Avraham and Sarah, we know they converted what seems like thousands, if not millions of people. Nefesh Asher Asu Baharam. And yet, says Rav Moshe, where did they all go? They all seem to have disappeared. All we have as a legacy of monotheism is the children of Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov, of the Jewish people. What happened to those millions of people who were students of Avraham and Sarah but were not their children? What happened to those millions of people who were from the Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever? Says Ramosheb, because everything that happened in that point in history, everything that happened before Matan Torah, that was all based on logic and human reason. However, as Ramosha points out, human reason is such, and what is considered compelling in one generation is not necessarily compelling in a second generation. And that which people think may be logical at one point, but their children or their grandchildren or further generations come and say, that doesn't speak to us. We have better logic. We can think of things that are more compelling. And therefore, they give them up. However, says Ramosha, if a person is accepting the mitzvot, not just because he thinks they're logical and they make sense, but specifically because he knows that they are an obligation, and therefore he's duty-bound to uphold and follow the mitzvot, then whether he is compelled by the logic or not, he will still keep them. And that's why it's so important not to be uh, anti-rational, and not that we shouldn't look for and appreciate the reasons for the mitzvot, but we have to realize that our observance of the Torah and mitzvot is not grounded in whether they make sense to us or whether we can make a logical case, but rather in the ultimate authority and command that we were given to keep all these mitzvot at Har Sinai. Rav Moshe then finally makes the point that this larger idea about the centrality of Tzivoy Hashem, we have to fulfill mitzvot because that's what Hashem commanded and focus on the authority. It's of course relevant to all mitzvot, but it's not a coincidence that it was Shemitah that is used as the example par excellence, as the paradigm to teach us this broader lesson. Because says Rav Moshe, Shemitah is a mitzvah where it's obvious that the only reason to follow it is based on the authority of the Torah and the fact that we believe that Hashem commanded, and not based on rationality. Since for all the various theories that are proposed, and there are many proposed by Rishonim, for what the Tameh HaMitzvah, what the reasons are for Shemitah, nevertheless, as Ramosha, there's no rationale, no logic thing that we can use that would really compel a person logically to simply not work for a year. What logic could be used to compel a person for all the work he did in the sixth year and the produce that grew on the seventh year to just leave it ownerless, let anyone else take all the work that you, all, that you put your effort in? It's only because of the Tzivu HaShem that we do it, and therefore that serves as the right paradigm for this principle for all the mythos. Parshas B'chukosai, of course, is most famous for the Tochacha, the scary, very scary prediction of the type of punishments and curses that will befall us if we don't follow Hashem and his Torah and his mitzvot. However, we can almost forget that the initial opening section of the Parsha actually speaks about the more positive and optimistic side of the equation, if we follow the mitzvot, how Hashem will reward us. And the opening of that section of the Parsha itself is, Im osam. If you will go in my statutes, if you will observe my commandments, and you will do them, the next passage continues, Hashem will reward you with rain and physical bounty, etc., etc., Already in the Medrash, uh, people have noted uh, that it's interesting that here the word chok, referring to either the Torah in general or specific types of mitzvot, is specifically described with the verb telechu, you will go. Even though other times the word chok uh, has different verbs, uh, but here dafka it seems to be telechu. Why is that? So perhaps from a Muslim perspective, we can glean a, a very important lesson in life from a very beautiful uh, essay by Rav Yaakov Naiman in his Sefer Darkei Musr. 
He begins by noting a mashal, a parable, not said specifically about this pasuk, but in general from one of his teachers, Rav Nachum Zev of Kelm. Rav Nachum Zev was the son of the famous Alter of Kelm, the Saba of Kelm, one of the great students of Rav Yisrael Salanter, and one of the great second generation Musar leaders was the Alter of Kelm, and his son was Rav Nachum Zev of Kelm. So says Rav Naiman, I heard the following parable from Rav Nachum Zev of Kelm. Imagine you, you see a group of people talking, enjoying themselves, eating, drinking around the table. Basically, they all look the same, they all look like the same age, the same basic physical condition. However, when the evening ends, they all get up to leave, except for one person. He stays, he doesn't move. And the observer doesn't understand why this one guy stayed around. Until eventually he looks more closely, he looks under the table, and he realizes that Nebuch, that one person who's still there, he doesn't have use of his legs, he has no legs, therefore that's why he cannot move, he's waiting for someone to come and get him. Says Rav Nacham Zev, when everyone was sitting together, they looked the same. The differences between them only became apparent when they were ready to leave. So too, he says, Al-Darach Mashal, there's a parable, there's a lesson we can learn. A lot of times when people are in yeshiva, they're all sitting together, literally at the same table, figuratively they're all in the same place, they're all together, each one giving each other chizuk, and it could be a lot of people who are very, very successful in learning, they're very successful in their religious growth, in their studies, while they're all, literally or figuratively, sitting together in yeshiva. Only, however, he says, when they get up to leave, when there's an intercession, or when they finish yeshiva and they graduate, so to speak, and they move on with their lives, only then, says Amnacham Zev, can you really tell the difference. Who is really learning? Then you can see if their learning has legs, quote-unquote, or not. That's an expression that's actually common in English idiom. Sometimes we speak about a certain idea or a certain business. You know, it, it works now. The question is, will this idea, will this business proposition have legs? Which we mean exactly this point. Will it have a chance to grow? Can it expand? Can it scale? So too said Rav Nachum Zev of Kelm. Only when the boys leave yeshiva, then we can see if everything that they did, quote-unquote, has legs. Can they carry it with them? Can they take it with them into the outside world? And the answer is some can and some cannot. While they're in yeshiva, they're all sitting at the same table, they all may look the same. But the true test is, when you leave yeshiva, can you, quote-unquote, walk? Can you take the Torah with you? Does the Torah you learned in yeshiva have legs? Can you apply it and still live faithfully outside the protective environment of the yeshiva? That's the metaphor. Says Rav Yaakov Naiman in the Dark Musr, now we can return to our Pasuk. What does it mean when it says, Umchukosai Teilechu? Exactly this point. Can you telechu? Can you walk with the Torah? If you want to know if you're going to be a person who's going to be worthy of the blessings that the opening section of our Parsha enumerates, it has to be the kind of person who not only lived and learned Torah when he was in Yeshiva, and when he was sitting in safety and in a protective environment, but even outside of that. As he writes, Shetelchu im HaTorah, Shetiyana lechem raglayim, Laleches im HaTorah ba'olam. Can you carry the Torah out into the quote-unquote real world, the outside world? If you can walk with the Torah, if your Torah has legs, if the religious growth and personal commitments that you've made while you're in a more protective and wholesome environment truly have been integrated, truly have been internalized, then they'll have legs, so to speak. You'll be able to be telchu, be able to walk with them even when you're outside of yeshiva. This is not just kind of a cherry on top for someone who's learning in yeshiva, but he says this is really almost definitional or certainly critical. And he applies this to a very important Gemara Masechta Brachos Taflamet Hay, where the Gemara tells us that there's a kind of a metaphysical bracha. If people are on a super high level, known as Osin Ritzono Shalmakam, they're truly fulfilling the will of God, then one could be Zocha miraculously, Nasas Malachdan Aydecherim, that you won't have to work for a living, other people will support you, and you can be fully de- dedicated to spiritual pursuits. However, the Gemara says, if a person is Ain Osin Ritzono Shalmakam, if a person or the Jewish people on a whole are not living up to that level, they're not doing the will of God, then you're going to have to work like any other regular person and to support yourself. It's not going to be miraculously uh, delivered to you as a 
some kind of a reward. That's the Gemara. And the Gemara proves this by quoting the Pasuk of Yasapta Deganecha. The Pasuk says you have to gather your crops, says the Gemara. That's referring to people who didn't merit to have their work done by other people. Tosos already on that Gemara asks, one second, the Pasuk of Yasapta Deganecha comes from the second chapter of Shema, of Vahaya Im Shemoah, and it's talking about people who are very holy, people who love Hashem. Vahaya Im Shemoah, if you will listen to Hashem and you will do the mitzvos. And it's only in that paragraph that it says Vasafta Diganecha. How can the Gemara quote that Pasuk as an example of people who are in Osin Rutzon Shalmakom if the Pasuk itself is in a paragraph that begins Vahaya Im Shemoah, if you did listen? So says Rav Naiman, now we can understand in light of our insight. Evidently, yes, it's true. You can be on a high madrega, even of Ahavas Hashem. You can be on a madrega on a level of Ahayi Im Shamawa, and you can still be considered Ain Osin Rasan or Shalmakam. How so? Because that's referring to people who are only on that madrega when they're surrounded by a supportive culture and environment. That's when they do the right thing. But when they leave that protective bubble, when they're on their own, then they can't do it. Then they fall and they're no longer doing that. Even if that's the person who cannot do this when they're outside the protective environment, then even when they're in the protective environment, it's called ain osin rutzon shalmakom. The key test is, in If you can't take it with you, then it doesn't count even when you're there. You're ain osin rutzon shalmakom. And it works out beautifully, of course, because vahaya, that paragraph, is lashan rabim. Im shamoa tishmu, eschem. Only if you're doing it in the rabim, when you have friends around you helping you, if that's the only time you can do it, that's ain't osan rutzon and shalmakam. And therefore, he says, that's why people were, we're all created individually, because we really can do it on our own. Yes, it's easier with friends, and it's good to have a good chevra, that's very, very important. But it can't be a crutch that you can only do it when you're with people. It has to be imchukotai telechu. You can even walk with it. If your Torah has legs, then you are on the right madriga. The Torah introduces the laws of Shemitah. We are told in Perachav Hei, Pasuk Bet, the Moshe is instructed to tell the Jewish people, "Kitavo el haaretz asher ani nosein lachem v'shavt haaretz shabbat lahashem." When you will enter into the land of Israel, there shall be a Sabbath, a Shabbos for the land, a Shabbat lahashem, a Sabbath day of rest for Hashem. The content of the pasuk communicating that there will be a concept of shmita of letting the lie, land lie fallow that is conveyed in the initial phrase of v'shavta ha'aretz. It's not clear what is being added by the final two words, that, that laying of the land fallow is Shabbat Hashem. It is a Sabbath, a day of rest for Hashem. So Rashi quotes from the Medrash that Shabbat Hashem means l'shem Hashem, for the purpose uh, or with the intention being dedicated towards uh, Hashem. Uh, just like it says, says Rashi, Keshem Shinemar Bi Shabbos Bereshis. It's for the sake of Hashem, just like when it comes to the actual Shabbos, what's known as Shabbos Bereshis, or earlier in Vayikra, where a reference to the Pasuk regarding Shabbos also says it's a Shabbat la Hashem, a Shabbos for God, and there also it means to be dedicated towards Hashem. The Ramban quotes this statement of Rashi, he says, I don't understand. In what way are Shabbos and Shemitah any more, l'shem Hashem, must they have more kavana be done more for the sake of God than any other mitzvah or certainly than any other holiday? What about these times that they're called a Shabbos? Are they la Hashem, specifically for the sake of Hashem? Is it Yom Kippur? Is it Rosh Hashanah? Aren't the other holidays l'shem Hashem? Aren't they also supposed to be celebrated and observed for the sake of God? In answering this question, the great Mashkiach, Rabbi Yochum Lubavitz, in his Sefer Da'as Torah, says perhaps we can explain this, what Rashi really means, 
based on a very important uh, comment that one of the other Rishonim, the Ravid, makes in his Sefer called Balei HaNefesh. We are most familiar with the Ravid because of his comments on the Rambam. However, the Ravid has a number of his own Svarim, not just comments on the Rambam, one of which, which deals primarily with the laws of Nida, Tars HaMishpacha, Mikvah, and the like, is a Sefer called Balei HaNefesh. And in the introduction to that Sefer, the Ravid has a very profound and important meditation uh, and discussion about a lot, a lot of the broader uh, philosophical issues, not only of that area of Halacha, but of halacha and Torah in general. And there, basically, the Ravid asserts a thesis that the essential goal, ultimately, of all mitzvos, on some level, is to remind everyone that really, Hashem is the boss. In his words, Ulaman ha'adam ha'moshel alav. We can never forget that ultimately there's a creator on high, and he, in the end, is our ruler. He is the ultimate one in charge. His word ultimately is the final one. The Ravid, in his explanation uh, after this, his development, I should say, he goes through not every one of the 613 mitzvahs, obviously, but he discusses numerous areas or categories of halacha in which he says, whatever the finer details are, but the tzad hashaveh, the common thread, the common denominator, is exactly this point. So he describes all of the various halachos that take place when it comes to a person who's a farmer who owns a field, whether it's on all the laws about how they are allowed to plant, how they are allowed to plow. Then after the land has been harvested, when they gather the crops, the laws relating to gifts to the poor, things that are forgotten, areas of the field like peah that has to be left over, gifts to the Kohen and the Levi, Truma and Meiser, also true if a person has a vineyard. Then he goes on to talk about people's clothing, they can't wear shatnas, they have to put on tzitzis. What about people who own animals, all sorts of halachas regarding that. And then he describes a person's body itself, how there's certain halachos, most notably the mitzvah of circumcision or bris milah. Then he discusses during the week, the Shabbases, during the calendar, the, the holidays. And then he gets to the topic of that particular book when it comes to married life and all the laws that govern not only the way a couple gets married, but what goes on in their actual married life. Says the Ravid, all of these are to tell us this idea. We should remember that Hashem is the Moshel Allah. He is our ultimate boss, if you will. In light of that Ravid, says Rav Yerucham Levavitz, now we can go back to the Pasuk in our parsha. He says, this is what's going on. The Pasuk starts off by saying, Hashem is telling you, yes, I've given you the land I've give, as a gift. It's yours. But now that Hashem has given us as a gift, we could easily forget that he's the real owner. Usually when you give a gift, the person who was the recipient now completely owns it and the giver is out of the picture. You might have thought that when it comes to Hashem giving us this world. However, that's why the Pasuk continues, says Rav Yeruchim, Shabbat Hashem. That's why the Pasuk concludes by telling us it's not just that you have to let the land lie fallow, because maybe there's a good idea or a bad idea to let the land lie fallow. Maybe agriculturally that's a smart thing. But rather because Shabbat Hashem. It's a reminder that it's really L'Shem Hashem, as Rashi says. It's for the sake of Hashem. Not in the sense of a Kavana idea, but in the sense of the overall meta theme of all of Judaism and all of these halachos is to remind us that Hashem ultimately is the owner of the land. And yes, we have a right to work the land, but we're basically like his workers, or at best renters, but we're not the owners. Hence, there is no work in the Shemitah year, and not only that, if we had worked in the sixth year, and we harvest in the seventh year, that produce does not remain exclusively ours, it is ownerless, it is hefker, and anyone can take it. All of this, says Rav in light of the Ravid, is to remind us of this essential truth, that in all aspects of our life, Hashem is the boss. Interestingly, that Pasuk previously in Vayikra, that Rashi alludes to, that talks about Shabbos, 
Also talks about how you can't do malacha, you have to take a day off of work, Shabbat Hula Hashem. And Rav Yuchum says again, it's exactly this idea, that just like Shemitah does with land, Shabbos is a day where we remind ourselves that it's not about us. Six days a week we work, we put in our efforts as we should, but nevertheless we stop, we don't work on the seventh day, in order to remind us, says Yeruchim, ki yesh lo bore ha-moshel alav ulaman adam. We need to remember, as he had said previously, as the Ravid had said, that in the end Hashem is the boss. If we thought that we were the ultimate boss, and therefore everything was a direct result of our efforts, then who wouldn't want to work on a seventh day too? The more effort, the more work, the more result. The very fact that we stop working on the seventh day, again, is because Shabbat Hu Lashem. Not just to commemorate that God rested, but on a much deeper level to remind us that ultimately our success, the things that we do, and everything that will be an outgrowth of our efforts, ultimately is because Hashem will decide. Hashem is the boss, and Hashem will hopefully bless our efforts. But by stopping working on Shabbos or on Shemitah, we remind ourselves of this essential truth.